Hello, friends. How's it going? Yeah, the end of the third full day. Surprise, the end of the third full day. For some of you, as I say, the end of the third full day, it feels like, oh, it's been forever. How many more days did you say? Really, what did I sign up for? And, and some might have the reaction that, oh, I'm just getting settled in. Three days already? Really? Wow. In good Vipassana fashion, it's best to just notice what, what the mind does with that piece of news. It's the third full day. It actually, it reminds me, um, in improv, I, I do improv. Uh, well, this is improv. Our life is improv. But, but in improv, there, there is a game. It's called It's Tuesday. And the setup is, it's two players. They enter the stage. And one player, in the most neutral way, says, It's Tuesday. And then the other player has an emotional reaction, which could be, it's Tuesday, are you kidding me? Or it could be, oh, it's Tuesday, or, or anything. They'll just take it anywhere. So notice what your mind, as the second actor, how your mind is relating to, oh, it's the end of the third day. Is it going, oh, oh, he, oh. What? Just notice in good Vipassana fashion. It's interesting. It's always available to you. So, as you've been settling in, some of you may want to feel more. Some of you may want to to have the cathartic experience, to experience tears and have the purification. And some of you might be, oh, okay, stop, make it stop, enough of that, I want a breather. So, I want to have, I, I have a bit of a message, advice for both groups. So hang on. So for those who want more to happen, you're saying the phrases, okay, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be safe, okay, all right. Um, I'd like to share something with you from, from Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness by the Queen of Metta, Sharon Salzberg. So this is one of her, her uh, most common told stories. And, and at IMS also, when I was teaching with her, she told the story again. I never get tired of hearing the story, her telling it. So I'll read it so there's more authenticity. When we started our retreat center, Inside Meditation Society, in 1975, many of us there decided to do a self-retreat for a month to inaugurate the center. I planned to do metta for the entire month. This was before I had been to Burma, and it would be my first opportunity to do intensive and systematic metta meditation. I had heard how it was done in extended practice, and I planned to follow that schedule. So the first week I spent directing loving kindness towards myself. I, first, I felt absolutely nothing. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It was the dreariest, most boring week I had known in some time. I sat there saying, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, over and over again with no obvious results. Then as it happened, someone we knew in the community had a problem and a few of us had to leave the retreat suddenly. I felt even worse thinking, not only did I spend this week doing metta and getting nothing from it, but I also never even got beyond directing metta towards myself. So on top of everything else, I was really selfish. I was in a frenzy getting ready to leave. As I was hurriedly getting everything together in my bathroom, I dropped a jar. It shattered all over the floor. I still remember my immediate response. You are really a klutz, but I love you. And then I thought, wow, look at that. Something did happen in this week of practice. (laughs) So even if it feels like nothing is happening, you are planting seeds. Seeds, one seed after another, after another, after another. 
And it might surprise you when you drop that vase or something else happens in the world. When somebody surprises you, you receive a phone call like, whoa, where is that niceness, kindness coming from? I thought nothing was happening when I was saying all these phrases. So take heart, take heart. Something is happening on a level you may not have access to, you may not be aware of. So for those, for the group who is, might be going through the cycles of purity, purification, know that there are tools that we've talked about that are available to you, tools of self-compassion, holding what is coming up, but also as other members of, of the teaching team will talk about more and have talked about, mindfulness, vipassana, is available to you. If something comes up that is too, too much to hold, one option is to go to mindfulness and be with it and hold it. Just breathe and sit with it, observing what is coming up. Oh, sadness, sadness. Sadness is like this. What does it feel like in the body? Get embodied. Feel the sensations of the body. Oh, it feels heavy and tight. Oh, heaviness, heaviness. Oh, warmth in the hands, heaviness in the limbs. Whatever it is, you can switch to vipassana, to mindfulness, to be with it mindfully, whatever is coming up. You can apply gentle curiosity as you're breathing with it. And sometimes you can just sit and breathe with it. Just hold it. Just embrace and be with. It's like this. It's like this. Fear is like this. Sadness is like this. It's like this. Giving it a wide, wide pasture. Holding it with a lot of space. Not trying to entrap it, but holding it with a lot of space. It's like this. Just holding, holding, holding. The main topic for the talk tonight is benefits of metta. But before I, I start on, on the main feature for tonight, there's one more thing I want to share with you. And that is, I came up with an acronym that I wanted to share with you. That might, the acron- an acronym that might be helpful as you're going through your practice to just kind of you know, play with the elements. Sometimes acronyms are helpful. You know, we have these various acronyms in, in our tradition, like RAIN, R-A-I-N, for working with emotions. And I've come up with a new one. So we should make it, I want to make it part of the Pali canon, but I think it's too late. But anyway, so, <laughs> so the acronym is GRACE, is for metta practice, is GRACE, G-R-A-C-E. So G is for gentleness. Really, this practice is a practice of gentleness. Gentleness in your body, gentleness with the approach, gentleness, really imbuing everything that you're doing with gentleness, the, the, the practice, the phrases, the, the walking, everything, gentleness. May you be imbued, may be embraced, may you be embraced with gentleness. G also stands for gradual cultivation. It's gradual. It's not overnight. It's not going to happen overnight. It would be lovely if overnight we would be transformed to absolutely loving beings that were completely compassionate to ourselves and everybody else. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen that way. It's gradual. So patience, be patient, and know that it's gradual. You're planting seeds, one phrase at a time, one step at a time, one moment at a time. The R are of grace also stands for two things. One is to relax. Ah, if you do this practice when the body is relaxed, the mind can be a lot more comfortable. The mind can also be relaxed. Notice you're tightening if you're working too hard, conjuring up your benefactor. If you're trying too hard with the phrases, ah, just take a step back. Take the foot off the gas pedal, relax. Let the phrases come from a gentleness, from their relaxed body, relaxed mind. 
The R also stands for receive. As important as it is to give metta, it's also important to receive metta, that to soak in the metta that you generate for yourself, and also feeling supported by the metta, by the kindness of the environment, feeling safe, that receiving, receiving, soaking it in, can be a very important part of practice that I want to emphasize and bring in. And tomorrow in the guided meditation, I will emphasize the aspect of receiving because I think it's very important in this practice to receive and to give. It's a cycle. It's giving and receiving. It's not just one. So A, G-R-A, arrive every moment arriving every moment. Every moment is a new arrival. It's a new arrival. If your mind was off thinking, planning, it's okay. Each moment, every moment is a new arrival. It's a new moment. It also stands for accept. Accepting whatever this moment is giving you right now. If you woke up and you planned you were going to do compassion, you, you were going to do metta for um, for your benefactor, but something really impo- strong has come up in an emotion of pain for you, ah, accept that it's time for doing compassion for self. Accept what's happening right now. What, what the natural flow of your practice is, 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 um, is unfolding as. C. C is for Continuity. And it's really important, so I didn't overload C with any other words. It's just C, continuity. I remember um, early, in early years, maybe it was one of my f- second retreat, I remember um, uh, uh, Stephen Armstrong, the teacher, he has a Bostonian accent, I believe. He would say, continuity, continuity. And I didn't quite understand what he meant, how important continuity was, until I realized continuity really is the secret sauce, um, the secret of success, I think, um, last night. Um, uh, uh, I think it was last night you were saying, right? Was it was continuity? No? I'm making it up. Okay, anyway. Uh, con- <laughs> continuity is so important when, or maybe it was this morning. Um, yeah, it was this morning. When you, um, when you don't make your practice choppy, when it's continuous, when you're sitting and then as you're standing up, it's continuous. When you're walking, when you're going to get a cup of tea, you're still practicing in a very gentle way, in a relaxed way. Continuity works because of the other two, because of gentleness and relaxedness. It was continuity with a lot of effort. You would be exhausted by the end of the day. But if you have, if you have gentleness and relaxed practice, you can practice throughout the day because it's gentle. There's very little effort. It's imbuing everything you do. It's, it's like saying grace. It's like blessing everything you do. You go to the bathroom, you open the door. Everything with gentleness and kindness, conti- continuity. When you get into, the, into your room and close the door, your practice doesn't end then. It's not like, okay, I'm off now. All right, nobody sees what I do. Your practice continues. Continuity, continuity with that gentleness. Remember, they go together. And the last one, E for grace, embodiment. Embodiment is so important to stay here now in this body, present, not to get heady, not to go into stories and imaginations, but stay embodied, stay present, feel in the body. As you're doing the metta practice, see if you can stay embodied, see if you can stay embodied. As you say the phrases, stay embodied. So I repeat, grace, G for gentleness and gradual cultivation, R for receive and relax, A for arriving every moment, an acceptance, C for continuity, and E for embodiment. So now after the previews, we get to the main feature, (laughs) benefits of metta. So as, as I share tonight the benefits of metta with you, 
my hope is is um, to to inspire and notice if there is a tendency for you um, to have expectation versus aspiration, because there is a big difference between expectation and aspiration. And you might have already noticed that coming on this retreat. You might have come up with high expectations of this is what's going to happen and this is how it's going to unfold and and it may not be going that way. And having expectations is the sure way to suffer a lot on a meditation retreat when you're coming with a lot of expectations. Because expectation is an aspect of ego satisfaction. Your ego wants something. It wants it to go this way. And any other way is not okay. Whereas aspiration actually comes from the the word um, in the late Middle English. It's a word from the late Middle English um, entered into the English language from the Latin aspirare, which is come as uh, which means to breathe. So it comes from breathing, aspire, breathing, breathing. An earnest desire for something above one. So it's an earnest desire, something above one. So it just kind of uplifts your spirit. It's an earnest desire instead of an expectation, an ego satisfaction. So check in with yourself as you go through this, this retreat. Is it expectation or is it aspiration? They're very different and you can feel a difference in your body. Expectation can have a tightness whereas aspiration can have an uplift in the heart. So I'd like to share with you the 11 benefits of practicing metta. Many of you might have heard this already. This is actually from the Anguttara Nikaya 11.16. It's a list of 11. And this is the traditional list. So... Are you ready? Okay. Number one, you will sleep easily. Sounds pretty good. Though I have to say on retreat, many people report having really vivid dreams, really strong dreams. So it may not quite happen on retreat because the retreat has its own energy. But in general, metta um, does help with, with sleeping better. And actually there is some research with a related practice, a lot of research with a related practice, um, practice of gratitude, that um, the, um, um, uh, uh, one of the uh, famous quotes by the, um, um, what's his name, I can't remember, maybe I'll remember later, but this um, uh, gratitude research says that the best way to fall asleep is not to count sheep, but to count your blessings. So, number two, you will wake easily. Number three, you will have pleasant dreams. Number four, people will love you. Sounds pretty good. Actually, there is some evidence. I'll I'll get to these later. I have some scientific studies I want to share with you. They're fun. Number five, devas, which are celestial beings and angels in this tradition. And animals will love you. Pretty cool. Devas will protect you. Number six, devas, the angelic beings will protect you. Number seven, external dangers such as poisons, weapons, and fire will not harm you. This one I'm not so sure about. So I'm not going to... Don't try this at home yet. I, I don't know. Your face will be radiant. This one, actually, I can attest to. Your face will be radiant. Number nine, your mind will be serene. This one I can attest to also. Practice of metta, really calming. You will die unconfused, number 10. This one I don't know yet. (laughs) I'm hoping. And this can be a major one to die unconfused. And the last one, number 11, you will be reborn in happy realms. And as Sally was saying, um, whether you um, subscribe 
to the various realms in the Buddhist psychology, the happy realms, the, the deva realms, being reborn, or just this one life model, the way you can see it is that the next moment you'll be, you'll be reborn in the next moment being a happier moment. So in this, in, in this very realm, you can experience all these realms. You can, you can experience the, the hungry ghosts, which is, you know, they're, they're, they're never satisfied. They always have greed. In this very realm, you can experience that when you're greedy. You can also experience in this very realm, human realm, you can experience a heavenly realm when you're happy and peaceful and feeling loving and your heart is expansive. So you can interpret it that way. So now, if you would humor me, I want to share some research results with you on loving-kindness practice. So I'm a nerd. I'm, I'm a scientist by, by trade. And, um, and I think, actually, these studies are interesting. In, in a way, they, they do confirm and um, um, they complement the... I mean, the, the, what we already know anyway, but it's kind of nice to hear it when it's done systematically. So here we go. So this practice, loving-kindness practice, has um, psychological, uh, um, brings about psychological changes, effects on happiness and well-being. There are some, um, in, in the landmark study by Barbara Friedrichsen, um, she had two groups, one group doing seven weeks of loving-kindness meditation. Basically, they would meet once a week with a teacher. Just It was a course, seven weeks, and then they would practice at home maybe. It um, doesn't say exactly how long, but let's say half an hour um, or something like that per, per day at home. So what, what she found was an increase in love, feelings of love, joy, contentment, gratitude, hope, interest, amusement, and awe. And these positive emotions then led to increased personal resources, that is, increased mindfulness, increased purpose in life, increased social support, and decrease in illness symptoms, which in turn increased life satisfaction and perceived quality of life and reduced depressive symptoms. It's pretty interesting to see actually when it's measured. I mean, we know that already when we practice, we know we feel better, we feel less depressed, but, but it's kind of nice when it's measured and it's like, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, we know that. Another study, the tagline is, kindness makes you happy and happiness makes you kind. So there is a virtuous cycle of kindness and happiness. In another study, there was an effect of six, six weeks of compassion meditation measured on resilience, stress, and immune response. After the end of six weeks, they did a Trier social stress test. Um, and they measured the uh, blood cortisol level and then the behavioral response. And for people who had gone through the six weeks, um, they had reduced... Uh, reduced um, stress-induced immune response. So basically their immune system uh, didn't get out of whack as much. There was, they were more resilient to stress. Isn't that nice? Who has stress in their lives? <laughs> Anybody not have stress in their lives? <laughs> so when we talk about dukkha, this, another meaning of dukkha is stress. So loving-kindness practice is an antidote for, for that stress, it helps hold the stress. And the, the study that I just men mentioned is interesting. It was dose-dependent. So people who, who practiced um, the compassion meditation three, three to four times per week or more had the effect. Those who, didn't, who just thought about it but didn't do it, they didn't get the effect, the immune effect. This practice also has physiological changes. It increases the vagal tone, which is a physiological marker of well-being, which then increases positive emotions and feeling of social connectedness. 
It increases the gray matter volume in the areas of the brain that are related to emotion regulation. The next study was done for women, with women only, so I don't know how how men would would do with this, but but they um, uh, again with a loving kindness uh, meditation, multi week loving kindness practice, um, they measured the telomere length, and the telomere length was a biological marker of aging um, compared to an age mash control it was different, so. So you can let go of the beauty creams and instead do loving-kindness meditation. It, it increases longevity. Um, it's the biological marker of aging. So actually, it's a small study, but I think it's interesting, actually. So, um, It also affects, this practice affects social connection. Even practice in a single short session lasting less than 10 minutes, this practice increases feelings of social connection. It makes you more helpful, makes you nicer. So it increases pro-social and helping behavior. It also, in in another study, um, they saw that it increased the perception of social connection. That means people felt less lonely just doing this practice. They felt more connected to other beings. And again, these are studies that I want to suggest because just you don't have to believe any of them. Look into your own practice, look into your own experience. I'm just dropping these here um, just to, to, to bring out interest, like, oh, how do I feel when I practice? How isn't my feeling... Um, about social connection, is there are there more positive emotions? Another very important finding about this practice of six weeks of loving kindness practice was that it decreased implicit bias towards social outgroups, and I think this is extremely important, especially given what has been happening in our country with the implicit bias against the outgroup. The African Americans, the outgroup, the white police, the in-group, outgroup. It's implicit bias. It's not explicit. They don't people don't even know. We don't even know we have implicit bias. But this practice, it decreases implicit bias that we don't even know we have towards the outgroup, whatever the outgroup might be, a different nationality, a different religion, immigrants. Whatever the outgroup is, implicit, it decreases implicit bias. And I think this is so important in today's world. And the, the results were measurable only after six weeks of pretty light amount of, of this practice. The practice also reduces self-criticism and it reduces depressive symptoms, which are actually, not surprisingly, depressive symptoms are associated with, with self-criticism. If your mind keeps turning the finger at you, you should be doing this, you're terrible, you're not doing this, right? of course you get depressed after a while, right? So this practice reduces self-criticism and hence reduces depressive symptoms. It improves self-compassion and improves positive Emotions and these results were maintained three months afterwards, after the the six weeks ended. There are also a couple of practices I want to share about pain. It decreases migraines, reducing migraine pain, and also alleviating emotional tension that is associated with chronic migraines. And the other one, the other study from 2005, Carson et al. By the way, I'm not going through the details here, just dropping them here for you. Is a pilot study um, with chronic lower back pain. So the gr- one group was offered either loving-kindness practice and another group was offered standard care that the medical establishment offers for lower back pain, chronic lower back pain. The group that was offered loving-kindness, 
they had greater decrease in pain and greater decrease in anger and psychological distress that was affiliated with the pain. Because as we know, it's not just the pain, right? It's the second arrow. It's the anger towards the pain. It's the, why do I have this pain? It's my fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's the doctor's fault. It's all the second arrows that this practice softens. Not just the first arrow, but all the second arrows to the degree that if you just take a pill, you wouldn't do that, right? No. So all these advantages that I mentioned in our modern Western world, if you could take a pill and your telomere length would be longer and you would be nicer and you would be kinder and you would be happier, you would be less depressed and you would have more awe and more satisfaction, quality of life and more social connection, you would get the pill right away, wouldn't you? Guess what? You're here doing it. It's gradual, it's gradual, gentle, persistent. But this is it. This is the practice you're doing. The practice you're doing does this. Everything I mentioned, that's what it does. The benefits of metta. So now I invite you to let go of all the intellectual reasons, everything that I've offered you so far. Let's let let go of all of them, of all the reasons why metta is good for you. And now let's let's contemplate. Let's sit with the contemplative perspective. Maybe doing this practice not because it's good for you and makes you happy and all the good stuff, which, which are good, but maybe because it's a profound practice that has the potential to change who you are, to help you become aligned, more aligned with whom you really want to be in this life, with your highest intentions as a human being, living in this body, in this planet, at this time, in this world. To share with you, I'd like to share with you a, a uh, quote from Jack Hornfield from his book, A Path with Heart. In the stress and complexity of our lives, we may forget our deepest intentions. But when people come to the end of their life and look back, the questions that they most often ask are not usually, how much is in my bank account? Or how many books did I write? Or what did I build? Or the like. If you have the privilege of being with a person who's aware at this time, at the time of his or her death, you find the questions such a person asks are very simple. Did I love well? Did I live fully? Did I learn to let go? I'd like to repeat the last line. If you have the privilege of being with a person who is aware at the time of his or her death, you find the questions such a person asks are very simple. Did I love well? Did I live fully? Did I learn to let go? This practice can open us to our full potential as human beings. Help us leave a legacy of love and care. Live fully. And it's up to us. Nobody will do it for us. Nobody. It's up to us to do it, to cultivate a loving heart. I'd like to share with you a Rumi poem. 
And since I'm Persian and I can speak Farsi and read Farsi, I was born in Tehran, Iran. So I will first read it in Farsi. And then I will offer you the Coleman Barks translation and then the Nikki translation. So the verse is Dast Boksha Domane Khudra Begir Marhame Inrish Josinrish Nist. The Coleman Barks translation is Stretch your arms and take hold the cloth of your clothes with your hands. The cure for pain is in the pain. Let me repeat. Stretch your arms and take hold the cloth of your clothes with your own hands. The cure for the pain for the cure for pain is in the pain. So with due respect, I think Coleman Barks missed a few things. So I'll translate it for you because I think it's even more relevant to the practice that we do than than this translation um, reveals. So, dast boksha is to to stretch your arms, and then damane khodra begir is to take hold, to grab your own robe or your own skirt. So, what the significance of this is that in Farsi, you, um, to hold, to grab, or to hold someone's robe means to ask for their generosity, for their mercy, for their kindness of their heart, to grab someone's robe. That's the expression. So what Rumi is saying is, don't grab somebody else's robe. Grab your own robe. And that's such an interesting use of language because we don't have that in Farsi. You don't grab your own robe. You grab other people's robe, other people's, and, and ask for their mercy, their kindness, their compassion. But he says, Grab your own robe. The second line, Marhame in Rish, Josin Rish Nist. Marham is the curing salve, is the curing salve that one uses for a wound. The curing salve of this wound, the word Rish, the first, the, the word Rish shows up twice. So the, the first time it means wound in Farsi. The curing salve for this wound is, so the second time Rish shows up, it means actually, in Arabic, it means embroidered garment. So the, the curing salve for this wound is in your own kindness, compassion, generosity. That is in this, your own embroidered garment, which in the first part is your own. So does that make sense to you? It's beautiful. So, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. So it's up to us. It's up to us to grab our own skirt, our own robe of compassion, of mercy. Because the curing salve is in our very own our very own robe, our very own grabbing. What's that? Oh the Nikki version. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it quickly. So then the Nikki version is stretch your arms and grab your own robe. The cure, the curing salve for this wound is in your own compassion or your own embroidered garment. It gets a little, yeah, your own compassion. So, kindness, kindness affects us all. Ian McFarland says, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. I love that. Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. I remember at times in my practice, this sentence kept being evoked for me every day, every day as I would go around in my daily life. Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. 
I may not know what their battle is, but I can be sure they have a battle. They're fighting. It's not easy. And it is up to us. It is up to us, both for ourselves and for others. I'd like to share a little paragraph from from Thich Nhat Hanh in his book, Peaceful Action, Open Heart. Imagine a boatload of refugees caught in a storm at sea. If everyone panics, they will jump up and move around hurriedly and fearfully, further destabilizing the boat and perhaps causing it to capsize. But if there is just one person who remains calm, who with his equanimity, his or her equanimity, can say, Dear friends, stay where you are and sit quietly. That person can save the whole group. Though he or she doesn't do anything but stay calm and help others regain their calmness. In this way, catastrophe is averted. This is skillful non-action, the quality of being that is the ground of all good action. I feel the same way about metta. In this world where there is so much violence and so much hatred, we might be the only one at times to be on that boat to be holding the flag of kindness, of calmness, to be the one that makes a difference between the boat capsizing or the boat remaining calm and making it to safety. This practice, this practice of metta, practice of loving kindness, in some ways, is both based on a profound ontological assertion about the world we live in, that it is a friendly universe. And that underlines, underlines this practice. It's, this, it's linchpin. And also the way we approach the world. If we approach the world with kindness, it becomes a kind world it becomes a friendly universe. So they both go back and forth. So I want to talk a little bit about the first, about this ontological assertion, the friendly universe. Einstein says, the most important question you can ever ask is if the world is a friendly place. For if we decide that the universe is an unfriendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to achieve safety and power by creating bigger walls to keep out the unfriendliness and bigger weapons to destroy all that which is unfriendly. And I believe that we are getting to a place where technology is powerful enough that we may either completely isolate or destroy ourselves as well in this process. If we decide that the universe is neither friendly nor unfriendly and that God is essentially playing dice with the universe, then we are simply victims of the random toss of the dice and our lives have no real purpose or meaning. But if we decide that the universe is a friendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to create tools and models for understanding that universe. Because power and safety will come through understanding its workings and its motives. If we didn't have any delusion, any dust in our eyes, a friendly universe, a vast love, kindness and compassion is what we would see. I have to share with you, I have a fascination with near-death experience reports. And what that means is people who have had, say, a cardiac arrest and 
they have their their pulse has stopped and they have um they have essentially um biologically died for a few minutes and they get revived there are many cases when people come back from that state of quote unquote biological death they report having had an experience and I like to, I've read so many of them. I've had a fascination. I've read them from different countries, different religions. And there are various aspects that they share. Um, and I'd like to share one of them with you, which is a pretty profound one. Again, let this, um, let this flow over you with a don't know mind. Who knows? It's true. It's false. Whatever it is. Um, the, the case of this particular person um, her name is Anita Murjani, and um, she wrote a wonderful book, Dying to Be Me, My Journey from Cancer to Near Death to True Healing. And in her case, she actually had metastasized cancer, and she has a near-death experience. She dies, and, and she writes about it very beautifully, eloquently in her book. She was a simple woman, never wanted to be famous or anything, but she felt compelled to share her story. And after she comes from this NDE state, her cancer is completely cured. And many doctors, uh, the reporters in the book, have reviewed her case saying that according to what we know, it's not possible what happened to her. She, she could not, it's not possible. Anyway, so I just offer um, the sentence from her. In my NDE state... ND standing for near-death experience state, I realize that the entire universe is composed of unconditional love, and I'm an expression of this. Every atom, molecule, quark, and tetraquark is made of love. I can be nothing else, because this is my essence and the nature of the entire universe. Even things that seem negative are all part of the infinite, unconditional spectrum of love. I just offer this for your consideration. What if? What if we didn't have dust in our eyes and we could see what the universe is really made of? What if? So just as a friendly universe can be an ontological assertion as a baseline of this practice, which again, we don't have to believe in, I'm just offering that for your consideration. The same way, this practice can have profound implications as to how we experience the world. So by the way we practice, by the way we approach the world, it can actually feel like a friendly universe if we, if we approach the world with kindness. I love this quote from my friend and fellow teacher, Vinny Ferraro. He says, just see if you can approach every moment with kindness. You know what happened? What, you, know, you know what it does? What that does? That allows you to live in a kind world. The world becomes a friendly place. It becomes a kind world when you approach every moment with kindness. We can fashion a new world. We can fashion a new pattern for ourselves and for others and for the world we live in today. Hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone is healed. This is an ancient and eternal law, says the Buddha. At this time in our country and in the world with so much violence, so much fear, so much hatred, maybe we can be the one on the boat that keeps calm, that holds the flag of love and kindness and not hate. Fashioning a new world. I'd like to end with another poem, this one from Hafez. I'll do a Nikki translation. This is Hafez Ghazal number 374, 
which, by the way, in Farsi, this is one of his most famous verses. And the verse is, Biata gul barafshanim, vame darsa garandazim, falakra sarf bishkafim, vatarhi no darandazim. I'll read it one more time because it's rhythmic, actually. You can hear the, the rhyme. Biata gul barafshanim, vame darsa garandazim, falakra sarf bushkafim, vatarhi no darandazim. It's an invitation to all of us. Come, let's spread flower petals and fill cups with red wine. Unlace the roof of the sky and fashion a new way. Let's just sit together for a moment. the words of the Dalai Lama, love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.